so good. So good. Amen, amen. Thank you, Logan. All righty, you guys are ready to jump in? I'm ready. I'm so ready. Man, God is so good. God is doing something really special here. I don't know if that's just me. God's doing something really special here. And uh, yeah, we've just been on this journey of stewarding an environment and a culture where he's prioritized. I think oftentimes, at least in the West, we've built church around our needs versus his needs first. It doesn't mean that we don't love the lost and we don't do outreach, which we do. It doesn't mean that we don't go to the nations, which we do. But I think it's important for the first thing to be made the first thing. Jesus asks, what is the first greatest command? He doesn't say serve the poor. He says love God. So as a church, this is what we're establishing and pursuing is a first love people, a first love community that says, man, my ultimate longing is his ultimate longing. I shared this last week, I think, but in Revelation, right, you see the church of Ephesus who's doing everything right, right? They had Paul as their pastor for a few years teaching them, right? If you read the book of Ephesus, they got some really good theology, some really good teaching. They persevered through persecution. But in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to the church of Ephesus. He says, I hold this one thing against you. It's pretty intense for Jesus to say that. I hold this one thing against you. It's you forsaken. We're forsaken. Literally means to divorce. You've divorced yourself from first love, which is me. <laughs> like guys, we can, man, we can do all the right things. We can have the best theology in the world. Who knows? <laughs> Still not enough. See people fall. We think has the best theology in the world. They still fall. That the first thing has to be made the first thing. That's for all of us. Amen? All right. So let's go to Psalm 132. Psalm 132. You guys alive? Good, very alive, amen. Psalm 132, let's dive into this really quick. This is so important. Psalm 122 is a picture into the heart of David. That David, obviously, as we know, had his failure, but David was one of the most incredible biblical picture of leadership that we see apart from Jesus. This man was a general, he was an inventor, he was a king, right? He, he led thousands and thousands and thousands of people under his leadership. I think what's so significant about David, we all know that line, God says that he is a man after my own heart. 
and I, and I think like, man, we always talk about, I want to hear a good and faithful servant. But I want to hear, you're a man, you're a woman after my own heart. That David tapped into a reality that so moved God that no one else knew. Then in Acts, it says that David fulfilled every purpose from God in his generation. Even in the midst of his failures, God says, this man fulfilled every purpose that I had for him for his generation. That's what I want. He didn't hold anything back. Even in his failures, he didn't hold anything back from the Lord. And so Psalm 132, a lot of people believe it's Solomon, his son, is saying this, but he's, he's recounting a vow that David once made. He's recounting a promise that David made to the Lord. Verse three, it says this, that I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. That this vow reveals the heart of David, the core heart of David. Why David was called a man after God's own heart was because he had this singular desire that says, God, I want to make you a dwelling place on the earth. And you hear that, you're like, oh, it's like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know about that. It's a stretch. What did Jesus say to his disciples? This is how you should pray. Our Father who is in heaven, holy be your name. Your what? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That David tapped into the reality of heaven that he mirrored it down on earth, which we'll get into. That David tapped into how God longs to be loved and ministered to, and he brought that on the earth. And so David makes this vow And he ended up living out this vow to the Lord by building something called David's Tabernacle. You say David's Tabernacle. Raise your hand if you've never heard a sermon on David's Tabernacle. You can be honest. Dang, everyone has. I know y'all lying. (laughs) What is it? No, I'm just kidding. Um, David's Tabernacle, this is so important. This is what we're gonna dive into today. I have... I love, I love David's tabernacle. It's so important. I think it's one of the, the, the things that has been lost and forgotten that is so crucial, important today and for the church. But David, he had this desire to make a dwelling place for God to rest on the earth. Okay. Let me give some context until people are checking out. That when God created the earth, what did it say when he finished? He rested, okay? So God rested not because he was tired, but because what he created was finished. But he didn't only just rest from his work, he rested in his work. Tracking. In Genesis, the God who dwells everywhere was dwelling somewhere. Eden was a a, a location. The garden was a location within Eden. And the God who dwelled everywhere was dwelling somewhere. It says that they heard him walking in the cool of the day. 
This was God's design for humanity, by the way. God's desire for humanity is that we would live in such close proximity that he would dwell in us and also amongst us. And we see this narrative throughout scripture, God dwelling with man in the garden, God dwelling with man through the tabernacle, God dwelling with man through the temple, God dwelling with man through Jesus, God with us. And then we see the fulfillment of it all and revelation that God is fully, perfectly dwelling with man. Guys, this isn't like just some made up thing. (laughs) This is the heart of God. God actually longs to be close to you. Let me say that again. God actually longs to be close to you. If he didn't, he wouldn't have sent his son. Oh, I wish you would get that. If he didn't long to be close to you, he wouldn't have sent his son. He would have been like, figure it out. Good luck. He says, no, I'm going to step in God with us, right? He, he was the tabernacle. He came to bridge us back into right relationship with the Father. Oh, man, this is good. So what would happen today when us as believers carry out this vow of David? What would happen in the church when we get a hold of the heartbeat of this vow? Not, not the, you don't have to follow, okay, you're just never gonna sleep, but the heartbeat that says, God, I long with everything in me to be near to you and for you to be near to me. I shared this quote last week. I think oftentimes we, 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 think of this topic and we're like, you know, well, that's like when I get to heaven. <laughs> like when I get to heaven, that's when like I'll actually like be intimate with God. Like when, when, I, when I go to heaven, that's when I'll actually be close to God. When I, when I go to heaven, that's when I'll actually be free. That's when I won't have problems anymore. And I, and I heard someone say this. He says, if that's true, if we actually believe that we have to wait till we die to be close to him, that we have to wait till we die to be free, then death is your savior, not Jesus. So David made this vow, and he, in in this verse, there's an invitation for us as the church to carry this out. And so we're going through a series called A House for His Presence. This is our mission as a people to be a house for his presence. What does that mean? A house for his presence is a house for Jesus. It's a place where he is prioritized, where his presence is prioritized, where people live and gather around the person and presence of Jesus. I love that Jesus says, he says that I will build what? My church. (laughs) That my house will be a house of prayer. If it's his, he has to actually be there. Let me say that again. If it's his, he actually has to be there. Otherwise, we're just having a memorial service. (laughs) Man, there's that guy that I really love that isn't here anymore but we're going to gather and say a bunch of nice things about him every Sunday. That, I don't know what that is. It sounds like a funeral to me. Saying that my house, say my house, my house will be a house of prayer. I will build my church. If it's his, he has to actually be there. Rick Joyner, he says this quote, cool. he says, what would the church look like if it were built not to attract people, but to attract God? 
hope I'm messing your ideas of church right now in a good way. Guys, we've, we've built church. People are so important. The loss is so important. The great commission is so important, but that is secondary to the great commandment. How can we bring people to someone that we don't even love? <laughs> hey, let's go to the nations and teach people a philosophy. It's not enough. I think we've created a church where we created a, a, a gathering that, oh man, like my heart just burns for this. Amen. We've, we've created this gathering, guys, where it's like, we got to do whatever we can to get people in. Which is, yes, I want you guys all to meet Jesus. That's why we're doing what we're doing 100%. But if it's just 10 of you guys, I could care less. 10 people fully sold out to want to know Jesus. That's great. But we've created all these things to, to try to get people to want to be here. When shouldn't Jesus just be enough? Not the philosophy of Jesus, but the person and presence of Jesus. And this is very significant and I'm jumping around. But Jesus says that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. That when his house is stewarded the way that he, he, he intends it to be stewarded, all nations are going to come in. <laughs> that when God's presence is in a place, people are going to start coming out of their holes. <laughs> like, I want that. I heard there's a place in Lynchburg where God actually loves to dwell. I, I, I heard there's a people that are actually gathering around Jesus. And when they gather, Jesus is actually there. And healing actually happens and people actually get set free and marriages actually get restored. All right. So David's vow and desire was to create a resting place for the Lord to host the living God in his midst. And David accomplished that in what we know as David's tabernacle. So this is what happened. I want you to stick with me. I'm gonna go on a bunch of like history. It's gonna be like history class for a second. And then we're going to start preaching again. But David, what he did is he had this desire that I want to host the presence of God. If you're here last week, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant, how David had this moment where David finally became king. Okay, David finally became king. Saul was king. For 40 years, the Ark of the Covenant was stored away. Worship was stored away. God's presence was stored away. God was no longer prioritized for 40 years. And so when David became king, he says this powerful line. This is like his inaugural speech. All of Israel is present. And he says, it is time to bring back the ark of our God for we neglected it during the days of Saul. It's time to bring God's ark, right? Which is known as his footstool or his throne that when wherever his ark was, God's presence would be there. That, that when he became King, he said, now the priority, the center of our kingdom. And this isn't like 20 hillbillies, right, in a field. This is like thousands of thousands of thousands of people. This was a very successful nation. I'm going to bring back the ark and we're going to make God's presence and worship at the center and priority in our nation. And so he built a tabernacle. And if you guys know, you probably all know Moses' tabernacle. And in Moses' tabernacle, God gave instruction. There's the outer courts, there's the inner courts, and there's the Holy of Holies. It's in the Holy of Holies. There's a veil, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant rested. 
And only a high priest could go in to the Holy of Holies once a year. I want you to hear that. Only once a year can this one specific person actually go and encounter God's presence. That's how limited it was. But in David's tabernacle, there was no partition. It was literally just a tent and the ark in the middle, and that was it. <laughs> okay, so in David's tabernacle, he pitched, this, he pitched this tent near his palace, and he hired 288 singers and 4,000 musicians to minister to the Lord there continually throughout David's 33-year reign. David made worship and God's presence central for his nation. This is so significant. David said, we're going to make the main thing the main thing. And so what I'm going to do during my rule and reign, we're going to have nonstop worship. We're going to nonstop minister to the Lord for 24 hours every single day. And this happened for 33 years. That is insane, guys. This is the greatest pray and worship movement to ever touch the earth. And David did this. Theologians have studied this and they said it would have cost almost a million dollars a month to fund this. Think about this. Every single day, morning, noon, and night, there's slots where they would just go around the ark and they would just worship the Lord. They would minister to his heart. And they would just do this every single day. And this happened, what we believe, for 33 years during his rule and reign. So guys, I want us to understand this because being present-centered is not something that we came up with. It's not something that charismatics came up with. It's rooted in biblical practice and theology. We see this in David's tabernacle. It's believed that the majority of the Psalms were actually written in David's tabernacle. So I want you guys to see this. So imagine this room is just one big tent the Ark of the Covenant is just in the middle. And around the Ark are singers and musicians. And they're just worshiping and ministering to the Lord nonstop. But David, David knew the longing of God's heart. This wasn't like, David's like, here's just this cool thing that I want to do. He said, no, there's actually something about God's heart is, that is moved when we minister to him. And I had this moment when I was praying one, one day. I was, and I had this, like, this, this moment, you know, when you pray something, you're like, whoa, I didn't even, I didn't know I was going to say that, right? It's like that moment. And this moment, I was like, Lord, I don't want to just please you. I want to move. I don't want to just learn to do the bare minimum. <laughs> faith pleases God, which is still really hard for a lot of us. But I don't want to just do the bare minimum. I don't want to just please you. I want to move your heart. Like imagine in, in my marriage, if I'm just like pleasing my wife and that's it. It's like, yep, he does the dishes all the time, cleans all the time, it's great. But her heart has never moved. Her heart is, is never like, romantic, like romantically pursued. It's not gonna be a good marriage. So David caught on to this. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't chill at all. It's like, So in the tabernacle, you guys staying with me? I feel like whenever I talk about this, I feel like that meme of like the conspiracy person who's like connecting all these dots. 
And I'm like, over here is David's tabernacle, and this is happening over here. Everyone's like, what is he saying? All right. Stay with me. We're going to get somewhere, I promise. So in this place, when, when all this ministry was happening to the Lord, people believe a lot of the songs are just recording these moments of things people would sing and say. And 50, uh, there, there's about 50 psalms that were written about the Messiah. So it's in this place. They're not just like singing songs, guys. They're actually tapping into heaven. They're getting revelation. They're, they're getting theology about who God actually is. They're singing it out and they're getting prophetic moments of prophecy and they're prophesying. They're like, wait, well, I don't know why I'm singing this, but like the Messiah is gonna come from Bethlehem. <laughs> like this is how insane this is, guys. That in David's tabernacle, they aligned their songs with heaven. They came into agreement with God's purpose for the earth. So I want to plow through just a few verses to give you guys some context. First Chronicles 6 verse 1 says this, that they brought the ark of the God and, and set it in the tent that David had pitched for it. And they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. It's very significant to know that during David's reign, after this moment, there's no more animal sacrifices. That in Moses' tabernacle, you know, they would, sacrifice lambs and goats. They would sacrifice animals. But in David's tabernacle, their worship then became their sacrifice. That's not cool for anyone. Come on, guys. Let's respond. That their worship became their sacrifice. It was no longer about, okay, how, how can I keep a standard perfection? It was now a heart shift that says, my adoration is my sacrifice. And they, they tapped into a new covenant reality in Hebrews 13, 15. It says this, through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. That they tap into a new covenant reality. First Chronicles 16, verse four, he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the Lord, uh, before the ark of the Lord to extol, which means to enthusiastically praise, to thank and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. First Chronicles 16, 37 says this. So he left there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, Asaph and his brethren to minister before the Lord or before the ark continually or perpetually as every day's work required. And so when we, start to understand what is actually going on. It's, it's, it's absolutely insane. That David's tabernacle actually prophetically mirrors God's dwelling place in Revelation 4 and 5. What, what we were just singing about. In Revelation 4 and 5, we see the throne room, right? You see all these crazy things happening and the 24 elders and, and they're bowing down and they're singing, holy, holy, holy. And I wanna show you guys why this is significant. So just stay with me here. I'm gonna walk through the throne room in heaven and how David's tabernacle mirrors that. The first thing is that the throne is at the center of heaven. Worship is encircling him. Just as the ark was in the center of David's tabernacle in Jerusalem and worship encircled the ark. That David's tabernacle was in the center of Jerusalem and even in the ark, or in the, in the tabernacle, the ark was in the center. This is why we meet in a circle, by the way. The second thing, that four living creatures led perpetual worship in heaven. In David's tabernacle, there are four prophets or fathers over worship. David, Haman, Jaduthan, and Asaph. In heaven, there are 24 elders 
who are offering sacrifices of musical praise and intercessory prayer around the throne. In David's tabernacle, there are 24 worship leaders who lead teams of musicians in the tabernacle who are offering intercessory worship. The fourth, this is very, very significant, that every tribe and tongue is worshiping the Lamb in heaven. And in David's tabernacle, Jews and Gentiles were both allowed to worship in that place. It wasn't just the Jews. It was just this tent. And if, if you were Jewish, that's awesome. If you're a Gentile, you can come in and you can experience this presence. The fifth, the fifth and last one is that both in heaven and in David's tabernacle, worship was happening unceasingly day and night. David created a day and night worship movement for one thing, to simply minister and to love on Jesus. So why is this significant? Four things that I want to say why this is significant for us. The first is it reveals the power and significance of worship and its purpose. We say here a lot that worship is not the appetizer, it's the main course. We've created church where worship is an appetizer because we don't actually understand worship. We think we're just doing karaoke. But worship actually ministers to God. Singing actually ministers to God. Around the throne in heaven, there's instruments. There's singing. The second one is that David's tabernacle is a picture of radical devotion to God. That it isn't about duplicating a model or method, which there are churches who do 24-hour prayer and worship, which is awesome. But it's not about duplicating the method, but the heartbeat of Davidic worship. That today worship is, is very us focused, yeah? It's like, how can I worship, but that also makes me feel good. <laughs> how can I worship, but also that I can get something? Which there's a place for that. But when you see Jesus, you're not gonna say, hey, give me peace. I have peace with Jesus. You're like, no, like, I'm, you're holy, <laughs> right? You're worthy. So it's about the heartbeat of the worship that David created. That the very core of David's tabernacle is about intimacy and partnership with God. It calls us back to our priestly calling, which is to enjoy God's presence, to minister to him, and to prioritize him over everything else. And the last thing is God is rebuilding David's tabernacle through his church. Amos 9.11 prophesies, it says this, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repairs damages. I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Acts 15 also says this, we don't have to read it, but Acts 15, 16 to 17, New Testament talks about rebuilding the tabernacle of David. All right. 1 Corinthians 3.16, let's go here. This is, this is where I want to land the plane. Oh, I'm going to take a deep breath. Paul says this. Do you not realize? Look to your neighbor and say, do you not realize? Do you not realize? That all of you together, say together, all of you together are the temple of God and that the spirit of God lives in you. Let that sink in. We, when we hear we're temples of the Holy Spirit, what do we actually mean? What do we actually think? Does that mean that we just like can't have tattoos? 
right? Which is like, which is what, I don't know where that inter- interpretation came from. Right, we've made it this external thing, right? Paul does talk about it. He says, you know, your temples of the Holy Spirit, don't just have sex with anyone, right? He talks about that. But there's something deeper. God could have called you anything. He could have said, you're a marketplace of the Holy Spirit. You're a building of the Holy Spirit. But he calls you the very same thing that hosted the presence of God. He says, you are a temple and the Spirit of God lives in you. Do you not know that? Don't you realize that? Because what would happen when we came together, which is very significant, when we come together as a temple? When we come together on Sundays as a temple, right? Stephanie Gretzinger, she says this quote I love. She says, what if you came not trying to get oil, but with oil? What if you came already with oil? not here, I'm here to try to get something. But when we actually gather the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit is gathering. What is the purpose of the temple? It's the host of presence of God. The learning to host God's presence is at the center of our assignment. That if we're temples of the Holy Spirit, Right, like I mentioned, what is the purpose of the temple? The temple was God's resting place. It's where he dwelled. It's where man and God met. So I know the idea of hosting God may sound strange because he owns everything, including our bodies. And God also doesn't need our permission to go somewhere or do anything because he's God. But here's why this is so significant. And if you ignored everything else I said, and you thought everything else I said was whack, listen to this. God will never force himself on you. God will never manipulate you to love him because it's not love. And so when we talk about hosting God's presence, when we talk about this, we think about a moment and maybe today, and this is not to put judgment on anyone whatsoever, but how can we have a moment in the room where God is moving like, you don't even have to be Christian to know something's happening. God is moving in the room. Half of the room is like weeping. Half the room is like actually pressing in. Half the room is actually, like you can tell, they're in adoration. It's not about a feeling, but something shifts. Their countenance shifts because they're responding to the presence of God. But then you can have another group of people who are in the same room where the same thing is happening, and they're like this. How? Because the presence is there, right? So this is why this is significant. It has less to do if God's presence is there or not, but if you are hosting him or not. If you're actually welcoming him in, because God is not gonna force himself to come into your house. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. Yeah, you're sealed. Scripture says you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're good. You're going to go to heaven. But if you want heaven on earth, you got to host him. I gave this example, you know, does anyone rent a home? I rent a home. Who owns the house? Your landlord does, right? 
Your landlord owns the house. But your landlord won't just barge into your door at six in the morning, open your cabinet, grab a bowl of cereal, and start eating it on your couch, right? Like that would be illegal. They might go to jail, I don't know. But that's not normal. So we think that when we're worshiping, God's just gonna do that. God's just gonna like break past your unbelief, which yeah, he could do whatever he wants. He does that all the time. But that God's just gonna move in if you don't even want him there. If you don't even want him, he goes where he's wanted. He'll give you what you want. You don't want him, he'll give you what you want. So the definition of to host is to receive a guest. The word hospitality, shout out hospitality team. The word hospitality actually finds its root in the word to host. And so guys, when we pray, when we worship, when we gather, our duty is to receive Jesus as the guest of honor. Think about this. Judas was in the presence of Jesus. Peter, when Peter denied Jesus, he actually was in Jesus' presence. He was actually looking at him when he did it. He saw him and he still did it. So the presence can be there but you cannot be. The presence can be there, but you, you can just be completely unaware. And so when we talk about hosting the presence of God, this is what David established on the earth, that I will not sleep nor slumber until I find a dwelling place for the Lord. Guys, what would happen when your lives become a temple for the Holy Spirit? What would happen, come on, for your families, for your homes, when you say, man, my home is a dwelling place for the presence of God? Now, I don't know about your house, but my house, in my home, God is going to be there. That I'm going to steward God's presence in my home. So it's less to do with how tangible his presence can be, but, how, but it's about how aware you are of him and how you receive and respond to him when he's there. So I want to give you guys four things just as we end. Four ways of how do, how do we actually do this practically? How do we actually host the presence of God? How do we welcome him in as the guest of honor? The first thing is you prepare for his arrival. If, if there is a guest coming to your home that you really looked up to, you really loved, you really honored, they're coming to your home and you didn't prepare anything. You're like, man, there's still dirt on the rug, you know. Dishes aren't done. House is a mess. But I hope you enjoy your stay. And we have to prepare for his coming. And what that means is, is that you come with an offering. Right? We enter his, his, his gates with thanksgiving. We don't enter in. We don't allow him to enter in with us being empty-handed. So just like what I said, that what if you came not trying to get oil, but with oil? What if you actually came filled up? And so that when you come on Sundays and you worship, man, it doesn't take two songs to get us there. God is already there before we even start. The second thing is we welcome him in. In 2 Samuel 6, 21 to 22, David has this moment with his wife, McCall. And this is so interesting. David is is the, the, the ark comes into Jerusalem. David is so excited. He's, 
He's dancing. He's, he's wearing priestly garments, right? Which at that time, a priest, it's just like if you were just to wear a firefighter uniform to like a Met Gala event. That's what David did. He's like, no, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna wear priestly garments. This is the duty of a priest. He put this on and his wife sees him from the top of her palace and she's embarrassed. She's like, what are you doing? How dare you look like a fool? You're embarrassing me. How dare you are a king? How dare you look like that? David says this, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more indignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. That when God is present, when the king is in the room, you either can check out or you can press in. So we welcome him with thanksgiving and praise and celebration. The third thing is that you give him your best. That Mary poured out her alabaster jar on the feet of Jesus. This was her her year's wage. Everything that she had, she poured everything out on Jesus. That when the king is in the room, you don't hold anything back. That he is worth giving everything, guys. I'm gonna say it again. He is worth giving everything. So the fourth and last one is that when he's there, you stay present and connected the whole time. So when we're worshiping, when we're hosting the presence of God, which is Jesus, by the way, it's not a fog, it's him. You don't check out. (laughs) Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith. Your faith. That I'm gonna stay present and connected. And what the devil wants to do is when you worship, he wants to distract you. He wants to get your eyes off of Jesus. He wants you to start thinking about yesterday. He wants you to start being introspective. Hey, you're kind of looking like a fool right now. Hey, like, if you worship passionately, people are gonna think you're weird. That's not God. Hey, if, if, you're, if you're weeping, it's kind of embarrassing to do that. People are gonna think that you're like insecure. But when you're fixing your eyes on him, he's authoring faith. And faith is what actually pleases him. And so when you're worshiping, it's actually done in a way that pleases him. Mary, right, she sat at his feet. That's what she did. And Jesus looks at her and says, she has chose the better thing. Martha, you can do all the logistics. You can think about yesterday and today, what needs to be done. But Mary has chosen the better thing because she stayed in connection. So guys, I just want to end with this, that a house for his presence is going to be costly. If we actually want to host the presence of God, like actually do it, it's going to be costly. It's going to cost us resources. It's going to cost us our time. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to cost you your pride. Uh Uh-oh. But this is the beautiful thing, guys. If we actually want heaven to come to earth, you have to ask yourself, what does that actually mean? When you think about that. If we actually want heaven to come to earth, Jesus has to be there. 
Because heaven without Jesus isn't heaven. It's actually hell. If we want heaven to come, Jesus has to be there. And so this is what we are building, pursuing, establishing in our homes, in our families, in our city, is a place that Jesus is welcomed, where Jesus is prioritized, where Jesus gets the first fruit, not our leftovers. Say that again. Where Jesus gets our first fruits, not our leftovers. So if you guys want to stand, I'm going to pray.